Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Shada Al-Hahmadi, an assistant professor in applied linguistics in TESOL. Uh, Dr. Al-Hahmadi, thank you for coming on Lost in Citations. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for inviting me. Now it's okay to call you Shada? Yeah, Shada is fine. Okay. Uh, do you mind introducing yourself? Um, w- what university are you currently at? Uh, I'm teaching at Umm al University in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah, I just, I, I was just promoted to be an assistant professor in applied linguistics. I teach um, uh, English uh, courses for um, academic purposes. Well, congratulations on the promotion. Thank uh, you. Uh, the reason why I know you have a promotion is because the article that we're talking about today, I think associated with that article, it said you were a senior lecturer. So that's pretty cool that after yeah, this article yeah. came out, you were promoted. Yes, I wrote that article uh, during my PhD study, and I just finished. I, in fact, I just um, I just attended my graduation ceremony a few days ago. It was so nice. That is that is awesome. Um, all right, we're going to talk about that, but uh, first, let's say the name of the paper. Uh, today's paper is called "Silence Behind the Veil: An Exploratory Investigation into the Reticence of Female Saudi Arabian Learners of English." And this um, paper was published in TESOL Quarterly, congratulations, and um, is also based on your thesis of the same name, correct? That's correct, yes. And your uh, advisor is Dr. Jim King, someone Mm -hmm. who I I often read his works, and I've had the privilege to talk to him. For people that are just catching the show, you can listen to his episode, Citation 27. And I've interviewed a few of his PhD students... Um, including Kate Mayer and Sam Morris and Leslie Smith. So we're kind of on a bit of a a Jim King thread at the moment. Um, So first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, When I I emailed you the invitation, Mm -hmm. you you kind of mentioned your email was very, uh, I really liked your email. I could tell that there was tension. It was, was, I I don't want to say no, was kind of what you were saying. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my life. I'm I'm really anxious about, about about anything, and I'm usually reluctant to speak in public. But yeah, I I I didn't want to say no. I really wanted to participate because it's really it's it's not it's not a common thing to find people who are interested in listening about silence, and I didn't want to waste this opportunity. I want to talk about silence, so. That's why I'm here. Well, I, I really appreciate that. I, I, I actually, that's the first time I've ever received an email like that because, you know, I've been rejected from like publications or lots of different things. Um, so when I, I was just, when you said I'm reluctant to, and then I yeah. thought it was going to be like, I, I'm a reluctant to do it for this reason or this. And I did, then I read it again and said, no, I'm reluctant to say no. I said, oh, so there, there's a conflict here so that she might say yes. This is cool. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I overthink everything. I overanalyze everything. Is that good or is that good or bad for a PhD? <laughs> it's probably bad, right? Yeah, it's it's really bad. It's really bad because you question yourself a lot, and then it's really hard to produce. It's really hard to write something, 
and it's always like it's always a big conflict in your mind and it's not easy at all well again i appreciate you coming on because you you sound similar to kate mayer who who said mm-hmm. the same thing I, i've talked to her uh many times on and off the podcast and one yeah. thing that she was saying to me a lot is that her friends are kind of shocked that she's a teacher because growing up she was a very shy person she continues yeah. to be a shy person. She gets tongue-tied in public. She didn't really want to do the podcast. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I'm actually the opposite of that. Uh, so I guess <laughs> we have different types of people researching silence. You you fall into kind of that shy, reticent person growing up. Yeah. I'm kind of I'm kind of the opposite. Uh, not of course not when I'm speaking Japanese. I don't I don't know. Are you a shy person in your native language? In both langu- languages. In yeah. both languages. Okay. Even in, even in Arabic, yes. And uh, you, you've mentioned Kate. I, I knew her. She's really nice. And uh, we wrote a book chapter together about anxiety. Oh, really? It's coming out soon. Yes, it's coming out probably in April. That's, that's, so that's awesome. So I know that she feels for, for shy people. She feels for anxious students. She's amazing. That's really cool. All right. Well, let's, let's kind of work our way backwards. Uh, we're going to go yes. the opposite. So first of all, congratulations mm-hmm. on finishing your PhD. You. Um, I've actually, I've actually been reading your thesis. Um, mm. Two, two, two of two theses. Thesi? What's the, what's the plural of the, the theses? Two, two theses. So I'm, I'm reading, I'm reading yours and um, another PhD student of Jim King's, uh, Sam Morris. Mm. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm reading them is, because I just started my PhD and I'm just trying to f- make an outline. So I I'm, I really liked your outline of silence. And then Sam's PhD thesis is more about Japan. So I'm kind of looking at both of yours going back and forth. It's such a massive project. So I guess the first question is, when did you officially start your PhD? Because I, I know you finished in 2022. I started in January 2019, so I actually finished in three years and four months, I believe. I submitted the thesis after three years and four months. Wow. No, three years, three years and, and yeah, and two months, actually. Wow. That fast? It was, and it was a lot of pressure, believe me, because it was during the COVID, the COVID times, and I am a mother, I have small children, to look after and I had to to travel and study abroad and leave my family it was so stressful so for me one reason to there there was a main reason to finish this quick because I, I really wanted to go back to my normal life and to the routine and everything and I I was studying full time so I had the opportunity to focus only on on study I wasn't teaching at the time Ah, uh, I see. Okay, so you were a full-time student. Did, were you at, yes. at Leicester? Yes, I was a full-time student at Leicester. So I had all my time, beside being a mother, to um, concentrate on studying. So did your family go with you? Your children went with you? Yes, I had my three children with me. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, wow. That is... So yeah, did you live uh, off campus or did the university help you find accommodations? How did that work? No, no, I lived, I lived off campus because I had three children. I needed to find a, a, a big space for us. <laughs> so what did your, what did your, what was your schedule like? Um, 
like, what did your children do? Like, when did you write and read and, and go to the library? How, I usually, how did you? I usually work only in the morning, to be honest. Okay. Um, I'm, I, I'm a morning person. I wake up early, um, uh, drop my kids to school, the little one in nursery, and then I spend all my day um, reading and writing. So when they come back from school at three or four o'clock, I stop. I stop. Although I'm only with them, sometimes I'm only. I feel that I'm only with them, body without a soul. Mm. My home, my mind is not with them. But I try to not do any work during the evening because they need me. I, that brings up a good point. So I don't. You probably haven't heard the episode because it's not on the website yet. But I had a conversation with um, Dr. Paul Sylvia, and he wrote this book on how to write, how to write a lot. And I did mm. another interview with him where we, we, we were talking about research and things. And that was one of my questions. You know, he always suggests wake up early in the morning and write at a certain block of time, five days a week. And then yeah. that's it. And I said, well, how do you turn your mind off? Because I really have a trouble doing that. And he, he said mm. it's not that difficult for him. He just, he's like, he sits down at the computer those two hours. And after that, he goes about his life. But for me... I, it's really, I, I think that's what you're kind of alluding to, right? It's hard. You were with them in body, but your mind is kind of thinking yeah, about I, your I research, couldn't. right? Yeah, I couldn't t- turn my mind off, but I had to try it and pretend and, and, and try to, to be with them because it's it's not their fault that their mom is so busy. But maybe it's different when you're writing a book and, or, and, and when you are under a pressure of deadlines and, and submitting the best work you can do. I, I think it's different. I how, don't know. Because, how, okay, because sorry, I'm, I'm trying to write, uh, sorry, I'm trying to go back and, and write research now. It's really different than mm. writing a PhD thesis. The pressure is is way less. And yeah, I think now I can be with them in the evening without thinking about the paper I'm working on because I'm not that stressed mm. about it. Yeah. I do it because I, I want to do it. Right How now. often did you meet with Jim King? Uh, once a month. And sometimes we met even more than that. Mm. Yeah, so, when, yeah, when I had any question, we met uh, like every two weeks sometimes, especially in the first year. Now, what, what was your process as far as organizing your outline? Because for me, I'm 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 a I'm really into outlines. If if I don't have an outline, mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. I can get lost. If I have a really good outline, yeah. I can work on a certain amount of pages every day. I don't have a problem with that. But if I don't have a, a strong outline, I just can't. I don't know what I'm doing. I just so. What was the process yeah. of of making the outline? Did did you and he work on it together? And did you finally have an agreement on it, or did it change over time? Yeah, you're right. I kept working and changing my outline until, believe me, until the last minute. Really? And um, Yeah, because I, I did what you're doing right now. I used to do that, um, read theses and, and look at other people's outline. I, I wrote, I organized my first outline in the first year, at the end of the first year, and I kept changing it. I kept editing, editing it until the very last months of, of the writing. It's I, I I don't wanna, yeah I, I don't I don't want you to worry about it but no go it's ahead it's an ongoing process <laughs> it's an ongoing thing because you as you write I believe as you write in in the process of writing you start to um 
see things differently. Mm. No matter how much you plan, but when you start writing, you, I don't, I, I think you, you start processing things, you start rethinking things. I don't know why, because writing itself, I believe, is, uh, I don't know how to say it. Writing itself is a whole process of thinking, rethinking, and reviewing. It all happens at the same time. So yeah. you're not only writing, you're doing everything at once <laughs> in a way. I don't know. Did you do things like exercise or go for walks or did you have ways that you could break it up? Because I, I feel like if I can't go for a walk or something, it's just, I, I feel like I just get lost in yeah, everything. Yeah, walking really helps. Walking really helps. I, I, I love walking, but I don't know it's often, I, I mean... The last year of the PhD, I, it was really bad on my physical health. I didn't move a lot, to be honest. But walking really helped, really, really helps uh, me. Really helps, I mean, in, in, in thinking. And uh, and I also like driving. Mm. When I'm in the car, I think more clearly. All right, well, let, let's back up again. Uh, because I, I was reading, start, I haven't read through the whole PhD, but... Um, I, I, I've started it and you mentioned that you had an experience in Canada doing your master's degree. Mm, yeah. so, so what can you, can you tell us that story? How did you end up in Canada? I wanted to, uh, to do a master's degree directly after uh, finishing university here. And I honestly went with, with, with my husband, he's a physician and he, he needed to do um, a fellowship program there. So we went oh. together we had plans and I, uh, so that's why we, we chose Canada because it's, it's good for him, I believe. Hmm. So I found excellent programs there. I, and I, I, I started studying there. It was, uh, for me, it was a life changing experience to be part of that program and to change the environment. It hmm. helped me a lot and it made me realize that I'm not who I thought I am. It made me realize that a shy person can be more than that. And at that time, I started uh, having a passion towards studying silence because I learned that it has so much potential and and it's it, the, the issue is much more complicated than I thought. So it all started there in, in, in Vancouver, in Canada. Oh, okay, Vancouver. Yeah, I, it's really beautiful. Yeah, I, I lived in Vancouver for about a year and a half. Many Oh you did. Many, many <laughs> years ago. I was actually studying um uh trumpet. And uh oh. the principal trumpet of the Vancouver Symphony. He's he's an incredible trumpet player. He's still there actually. Um oh. but that's like uh yeah, Vancouver Vancouver's an awesome, awesome city. So you did a you did a master's in in what? Applied yeah. linguistics? In Tessel. No. In Tessel, okay. In Tessel, yes. And before that, were you interested in silence or were you kind of introduced to the topic while you no, were there? No, I wasn't. Yeah, I, I wasn't. I wasn't I wasn't thinking about silence. And when I was there, I, I wasn't introduced actually to the topic of silence there. It was through my personal experience. Mm. Because studying here in Saudi Arabia and, 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 and growing up here, I was always very quiet, very shy person. And... 
I was excellent in, 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 in I mean, in, in every academic subject. I didn't have any problem, but I kind of accepted myself as this very quiet, very silent person. Um, I preferred writing than speaking. So when I was there and the environment was really different, I found myself acting differently. It wasn't so hard to speak after all. I did presentations and I we did acting, we did things that I thought I, I, I was never able to do. So at the end of the, of the program, I chose to write about, at that time, I didn't call it silence. I called it non-participation mm. and the meaning of non-participation. I, was, I wasn't really, at that time, I didn't really understood the, fully understood the topic of silence, but the passion started there. Because I, it was through myself, through, through through seeing myself changing and 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 acting really different than I thought I am. After all, I I could actually I was actually able to speak. I was actually able to present and share experiences. And so at that time, I believed it's all about the social context. Mm. If you if if a student was put in another more safe, more um, uh, cooperating more, um, yeah, I mean, different context, the student will act differently. So I finished the program with this idea. It's all about the social context, but I, I still had questions after that. I, 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 I kept thinking that people are different. No, I I know that that the social context is important, but people are really different. We were not born the same. As you said, some people are shy. Some people are actually more extroverted. They gain energy from speaking to other to others. So, I wanted to see that this element. I wanted to include this element in my study. Individual differences as well as the social context. Both of them. How can they? How can both of them determine? How can both of these elements be considered when studying the behavior of students, when studying the level of participation, oral participation of students? So that's why I started the program with Jim. Because I was introduced to his book. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The one from 2013? Yes. The very ambitious uh, classroom observation study. The yeah. cops, the, all the cops things. Um, <laughs> it's 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 interesting. You talked about acting because I've been doing a lot of reading about acting as it relates to emotional labor, where yeah. like in in Japan, and this was something I was reading in in Sam Sam Morris's thesis as well. He was talking about there's almost an expectation for foreign English language teachers in Japan to be more of this positive, outgoing kind of like what you're talking about you uh mm-hmm. this expectation to create this environment that is a bit contrary to the japanese system where things are more reticent and more silent mm-hmm. and students are more yeah. shy and all, all of these things but there's this cultural expectation and that's what, what he was talking about is there uh mm-hmm. becomes this a bit of emotional labor like maybe we don't want to put on this act now for you it sounded like when you did the acting um, it actually was a positive experience. It wasn't a, a laborious experience. No, it was a really positive experience because of that particular context I was in. We were a group of twenty students who 
spent uh, 16 months together so I felt pretty safe with them I was safe with they, they were they were really supportive so uh, now that I understand I believe that I, I have a better understanding of the situation it's about this particular unique situation being with that group in that context I mean it could be it, it was for me it was positive but if one of these elements was different maybe the outcome will not be the same i'm i'm looking through your thesis and again um the chapter is uh, sorry the paper is silence behind the veil an exploratory investigation into the reticence of female saudi arabian learners of english i think if you google the thesis you can find it as well the chapter i'm really looking forward to is I guess the start of your literature review, uh, chapter mm. three, um, yeah. because you really go. I mean, I I still have a lot a lot of reading to go, but once you start researching silence, you know, you start to bump into these papers that talk about you know corporations or employee silence or um, uh, resistance silence or so you you mm. went pretty deep here. Did you get kind mm. of lost? In citations a bit when you were going into silence, it seems like you, at least looking at the outline, it seems like you have a very clear idea how you wanted to go through the different theoretical mm -hmm. approaches, and then you sort of broke it down into your scope. Was that chapter sort of, because I think that's a yeah. really interesting chapter that I want to read. Was it difficult to write? Um, because I wrote this chapter, I honestly wrote it twice. I wrote it at the first year I started writing literature review chapters. So I wrote this one the first year. And then at the third year, when I was uh, doing the final draft of my thesis, I went back and I changed everything. Oh, my gosh. I changed everything. Yes, because at the beginning, you, you, you pick different uh, ideas from the literature of science. But after collecting data and analyzing data and, and, and writing discussion and results, when you go back, you find that no, you want to you want to write about the, the same literature, but your voice will be different after mm. collecting data. So that's what I changed. I because because that's what uh, when 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 Jim re uh, read my literature chapter in the first year, that was his comment. Where is your voice? Mm. I need to see your voice, but I didn't have one at that time. I was just uh, fascinated by everything I read. So I changed the whole structure. I, 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 I deleted some parts. I added some parts. And I, I believe that I, the most important thing that here that I, I needed to, uh, I, I, I needed to uh, make my voice clear through the literature. Because now I, uh, I have data, and 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 I, and I saw the real thing. I I spoke with with students with silent experiences, and 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 and, and I analyzed everything. So, seeing the, the literature again through some uh, through some experience will make you see things differently. Now, one of the participants in your study was was talking about kind of this tension where. <clears throat> They they preferred to remain silent, but yeah. they they needed their participation points, and yeah. that kind of pushed them. Would you categorize yourself growing up 
in in the the education system was that kind of was that you 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 wanted the participation points and that motivated you to speak it didn't motivate me to speak but it was really stressful to think about the participation mark and to not feel safe enough to actually speak and it's it it was it was really stressful and many of the participants in 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 the in the study i did they talked about the stress they have they use the word stress a lot it was it was so stressful we need to get the mark some for some of them it was um motivation it was it was motivating enough to actually raise their hand and speak and some of them actually calculated the time they spoke that was enough for them to receive the mark and that's it so for for one of for for one of the participants she said i count the time i i raise my hand i make sure that i speak at least once in every class just to get the mark so how and how do the said, how do the teachers uh mm. what's the can you talk us through the system like how does that work the point usually system usually it's yeah it's it's usually up to the teacher to distribute the marks but for all the teacher i observed they uh they allocate 10 to 15 marks for participation and for them participation is only oral participation and um they make sure that they grade each student uh, based on how many times she participated in class and if the teacher felt that some students are really quiet she would um uh, pull out the, the 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 list of the names and she would call the students by names to make sure that they participated so mm. it was stressful for the students that i spoke with yeah, it's interesting because I'm I'm researching silence from the other side. I, I'm researching the effects mm-hmm. of student silence on teacher on teacher well being or teacher emotions, and that system yeah, which you just mentioned, mm-hmm. um, that sounds really stressful from the teacher perspective, and it sounds like a lot of work. Like, and that's another problem. <laughs> again, it has nothing to do with what you were researching, but one of the big problems with mm-hmm. silence in Japan is that there is no major speaking like everything revolves around the college entrance examination system in japan like everything sort of has a trickle effect from that and there Mm -hmm. is no major speaking assessment on that exam there just isn't and then even when the even in schools or high schools or junior high schools even in college there just aren't Mm -hmm. these really formal speaking assessments a because it's very difficult to execute on a large scale sort of Mm -hmm. a standardized test and so when I hear these stories about teachers with participation points, even at my school, even now I've been teaching over 15 years, I just wonder, how do you do it? Like, I, I mean, even that system, which you just mentioned, it's probably stressful yeah. for some teachers because they don't want to embarrass anyone, but they want to be fair. And then again, there's this expectation where you should be speaking. This is your chance to speak. There's limited amounts yeah. of time to speak, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, it's, I know it's stressful for teachers as well. And it could affect their emotions negatively when they feel that there is no response. So, so they may feel um, disencouraged to speak or, or, or they may feel that they're doing something wrong. It's not easy for the teachers as well. Yeah. Did you ever have a teacher that you found managed this situation well or better than others? And, and, and could you explain maybe how they did that? Because I, I don't have a lot of experience as a language learner. I have much mm-hmm. more experience as a language teacher. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's different because as a shy person speaking a foreign language, I believe that the challenge is, is way higher. And yeah, I had an experience with a, with a good teacher, a really good one. Because, um, yeah, I, I, I believe that, and, and this is the strategy that I tend to use in, in most of my classes. Uh, students who tend to be shy and, and quiet, they need to feel safe. So the, the, the most difficult thing for them is to speak to the whole class, to speak in public. So dividing them into groups is a very simple and very effective solution because for them, speaking to two other to only two persons in their group is much easier than speaking to the whole class. So when I divide them in, in groups, and in my experience, when we were divided in groups and speaking in the within the privacy of only three people, it was a lot easier. And testing my language with, with my classmates first, and then maybe if I'm if I feel good enough about it, I can share and I can speak to the whole class. I think this helps a lot because also another another issue with shy students who tend to be silent, uh, they don't they not actually ha- they don't always have ha- ha- have to be shy. Sometimes they're they're just reluctant to speak English, and outside the English the English class they might be very loud and and outgoing. So sometimes it's it's only about the second or the foreign language. So they tend to be, they tend to have really high standards about themselves, high expectations. And I, I know this because I felt the same. And when I interviewed some participants, they mentioned the same thing. They need to sound perfect. They need to be perfect. So they have this very, very, very unrealistic high standards that they, they, they set for themselves. Either I speak perfect or I or I stay silent. So again, dividing them into groups, giving them the time and opportunity to test their language, to test their answers before sharing it with the whole class, it makes a huge difference. There's a bit of a connection there between what you just mentioned about cultural perfectionism in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. It's very similar in Japan. Yeah, this, this, yeah, uh, I noticed that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but see, when I when I was taking Japanese lessons and I was really into taking Japanese lessons, I did uh-huh. not have that issue of perfectionism at all. I yeah. I had the issue of learning things that I didn't think I could use. Like that I mm-hmm. didn't I didn't have any interest of learning some of these things that they were teaching me because I thought I, I, I just need basic things. I need to be able to go to the store, I need to be able to get milk. So I just need very practical things. But yeah. I did not mind making mistakes. I wasn't embarrassed by that because I, I was in a class with the, the same level of people. So I, I, didn't, I don't really understand that. Like for me, part of learning is making mistakes. Like, and then, and then mm-hmm. I would go out. So, well, I would get frustrated outside of the classroom, right? Like I would say something in Japanese that I thought was correct, and yeah. I would just get like a blank stare at a 7-Eleven or something. Then I would get frustrated. Yeah. I didn't get frustrated in the classroom so much. So I, it's hard for me to understand that dynamic. Again, I, I come from a different culture. So maybe it comes back to that that context, which you talked about. Yeah, that's really interesting to, to learn because, I yeah, I believe it's a cultural thing. 
And for us Saudi learners, I believe more of it. It has it has a lot to do with with us being women here because we're raised differently. There are more pressure on us to be perfect all the time, to look perfect, to sound perfect, what to think about everything before speaking. It's a lot more pressure on 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 women than than men here. Of course, the, I didn't find any study that analyzed uh, uh, male students in Saudi Arabia and how they behave in classes. But I I can yeah. But it's it's it, it's clearly has um, has issues has has some background. The issue has background on 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 uh, women on women upbringing here. It's not only cultural thing. It's also it's also a gender thing, I believe. And I really want to explore this more in the future. Now, in the in the classroom, so you, mm. you, the, again, the title is is such a great title. Silence behind the veil. Were yeah. were students wearing? Um, I, I don't know the the, the term. Yeah. Is, is it called a veil? Were students physically wearing something that covered their face? No, 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 they weren't. But it's it's just a, a metaphor, a symbolic thing. Uh, because in, in Saudi Arabia, we have different campuses for male and female. So uh, we don't have to wear the hijab, the, the head cover or anything. No. Okay. Because it's it's only women's spaces. In, ah, uh, I see. Yeah. So I, I chose this metaphor with the help of, of Jim, to be honest, because I believe that it's um, it's very appropriate for the for the culture I'm talking about, and it's also like a metaphor. Silence could be only a veil, and mm. under that veil, many many layers of um, maybe challenges, many layers of uh, complication and 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 cultural, individual, social and institutional elements that are all covered in a veil of simply not speaking. So I think this is the main idea that I wanted to deliver. Well, the reason that I asked you... is more complicated than it looks. The reason <laughs> I asked you about that is, you know, the thing that's compounded the issue of silence in Japan, from my perspective, yeah. and maybe other teachers in Japan, is that I don't know about Saudi Arabia, but Japanese people still wear masks all the time. All oh, the yeah. time. And there's uh -huh. there's some predictions that even when the government says it's okay to not wear masks indoors, Japanese people mm -hmm. will continue to wear masks. And there's okay. like a few there's a few reasons for that. One, um, yeah. people think they look better, they're more attractive in a mask. That's one. <laughs> yeah. Um, which which I, I could say that 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 probably is true. It's I was kind of thinking that, you know, I think we we look at people and they look better with a mask. The other is that Again, this whole cultural thing of, of shyness. Mm. So for me, student silent, there are silent students literally behind the mm. mask or behind the veil. So behind the it, veil. Yeah, yeah, it's literally, <laughs> I, you know, it's, you're, you can't see. And then there's these studies that I, I, I've, I've talked about before on the podcast where Japanese people don't physically emote facial expressions with the same intensity as, for example, an American. So even mm -hmm. if they're not wearing a mask, it's this huge poker face. Um, yeah. So it's 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 kind of tough. Again, I, I'm looking more on, on the teacher side, but um, 
yeah, it's it's an inter- it's it's a really interesting topic. Do do you think that it's it's still a very few a small group of people that are researching it or do you think that it's growing in popularity? It's hard for me to it's hard for me to get my mind around it, it whether it's growing or not. I don't I don't think it's growing in popularity because even when people hear my uh, that this was my specialty, this was the topic that I was researching, they ask why. Why, why, why do you analyze silence? What is it <laughs> there about? So, uh, no, I don't believe so. Because as, as researchers of teaching English and applied linguistics, they, the, uh, researchers tend to think about the, the spoken elements of the language more and how to teach better, how to, um, I don't know. But they don't, they don't focus on the, uh, of the on on the nonverbal on the non-spoken part of the language. Yeah I, yeah, I I love this topic. Again, I'm doing I'm doing something a bit different. Um, I'm looking at the the teacher side, and I'm looking more on like an ecological system. So whether mm-hmm. the the teachers are using up coping resources w- with the the student silence in class, and that how it affects their 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 life outside of the classroom, and this could mm-hmm. be silence in lots of different ways. Like for example. Uh, someone, you send a text message to someone, they read it and then they don't respond. You know, Mm -hmm. like for me, I have a bias. I, I almost have a bias to all forms of silence and I don't know (laughs) if I always did, or if I just became biased towards silence because it, it kind of bothers me sometimes as a teacher. Um, Mm. and it depends on my mood. It depends on this or that. And then again, you do the research on silence and you, you find out how it's been used in the past to again resist or to to stand up for your rights or all these sorts of things, uh, mm-hmm. I'm actually looking forward to that moment when someone sort of asks me why I'm studying silence because I think it's ex- <laughs> it's ex- it's extremely it's extremely interesting. Yeah, and and you have a response for that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so, how how do you feel when you are when you are faced with uh, silent responses? Um. I think it, it really depends on the context. Again, when I'm teaching at a unit, like when I'm teaching at a school where I feel the, the learners are very motivated to speak, I don't feel it's really an issue at all. Uh, when I'm teaching at a school where it's a compulsory English class or, or it, it, it feels like they don't really want to be there, it mm-hmm. really almost, and this is something I've been writing about or researching is it's almost like an attractor state. You You talk about, you know, complex dynamic mm-hmm. systems in your paper and uh, Jim King talks a yeah. lot about that. So if you look if you look at the silence through the lens of complex dynamic systems, it's almost an attractor state towards more silence. That's kind of where, what I'm thinking about where mm-hmm. okay, they don't want to be silent. Um, I don't want to embarrass them. I know they mm-hmm. don't they you know they might have anxiety or they might be stressed to be perfect or I, I'm aware mm-hmm. of all these factors now. Again, it's a lot of work to pull out that sheet like you talked about and make sure you hand out the participation points. Mm-hmm. So I I have to try to really constantly fight to avoid just conceding to the silence where I say, you know what, you seem mm-hmm. happy not talking. Um, so let's just not talk. Now, that's not good for them. And that's mm-hmm. not my job. My job is to get them to talk. So that's a bad consequence mm-hmm. of it. But I would say to answer your question, there is a there's a, there's like this attractor state for me to the silence where silence is the attractor state. Yeah, yeah, it is very understandable, of course, yes. Um, 
but yeah, I'm I'm really into it now. I don't want to take too much of your time. I know I know you got a you got a schedule you got to get to. Um, but again, the paper is mm-hmm. called "Silence Behind the Veil: An Exploratory Investigation into the Reticence of Female Saudi Arabian Learners of English." Maybe last question. Yeah. Um, any advice uh, for up and coming researchers, people that just started their PhD? Um, anything that you can kind of think of that got you through it or a big mistake that you, you made that you wish you didn't make or something like that? Well, the first advice I would, it's not actually an advice. I'm, I don't feel like an expert, but it's that what got me through everything is my passion, truly my passion toward this, my passion toward the specific group that I was researching the female Saudi Arabian learners of English. So being passionate about it, being uh, personally uh, affected by the same issue, uh, that's that that's that what actually got me through the whole difficult process of of writing the PhD uh, thesis. Because when you are fully uh, immersed in an idea and you truly want to explore it. You don't think about the effort. You don't think about the time. You just get really lost in in writing and researching, because you you're happy about it. You're happy. About, you're you're really happy about everything you discover, and you want people to read about this. So find something that you truly love. You truly you are truly passionate about, and and then everything else will come smoothly. I believe. Oh, that's great advice. Um, well, please, please stay on the line. Uh, this is the awkward part of the interview where I say goodbye, but I don't want you to hang up the phone. Um, so uh, again, the article, everyone should should check it out. Um, again, it's called Silence Behind the Veil, an Exploratory Investigation into the Reticence of Female Saudi Arabian Learners. Uh, Shava, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot. If you'd like to contact the show, The best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.